You're listening to Historically Speaking from Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. I'm Kylie Smith, the Archivist and Museum Director, and today I have with me former fraternity president and former fraternity historian Kay Larson and our very special guest, Dr. Mary Osborne, Director of the Stewart House Museum. Hi, Kay. Hi, Mary. Hi. Hi, friends. Happy Women's History Month to you both. And to you. Yes. Happy Women's History Month to you both. I'm glad we're all back together talking all things history. Me too. And this month, we thought we'd highlight some of our favorite and notable Kappas from our virtual vault. I know we all have our own favorites, so let's see if we can remind our listeners why these women have a place in history. Kay, why don't you start us off? And I should note, most of these details are taken straight from our most recent issue of The Key, the fall 2020 special double issue of the magazine, and it was published to commemorate our 150th anniversary. So, Kay? Okay. Well, I was thinking back to a question we are asked somewhat frequently, especially in an election year. Are there any first ladies among our Kappa ranks? Well, sadly, we have not seen a Canadian prime minister or spouse of a prime minister who was also a Kappa. But in the United States, we have two one who joined as an honorary member, and one who joined as an undergraduate. I'll start with Lucy Webb Hayes. She was married to U.S. President Rutherford B. Hayes and is likely the most famous honorary member of Kappa Kappa Gamma. She is the first of the U.S. First Ladies to earn a college degree, which she earned at Ohio Wesleyan University and was invited into membership by Kappa's Row Chapter at Ohio Wesleyan in 1880. She wrote in her memoirs that women's minds are as strong as man's and equal in all things and superior in some. I love that sentiment so much, though I did learn something that was maybe a little disappointing when we were doing some additional research for that sesquicentennial issue. You hopefully remember that well-known suffragist Elizabeth Cady Stanton helped inspire the founders of Kappa Kappa Gamma to form a society of their own after she spoke in Monmouth in 1869. Well, imagine my heartbreak to learn that neither Lucy nor her husband supported women's suffrage. In fact, they offered a less than favorable reception of Elizabeth Cady Stanton when she visited the White House to ask for their support for her cause. And is it true that the nickname Lemonade Lucy wasn't actually a nickname of hers? That's right. Well, some historians have referred to her as Lemonade Lucy. The nickname was not used during her lifetime. But because of her husband's decision to ban alcohol from the White House in an effort to keep fellow Republicans from shifting their support to the Prohibition Party, along with Lucy's support of the temperance movement, the nickname stuck. She said on one occasion, it is a great mistake to suppose that I desire to dictate my views to others in this matter of the use of wine and uh, such drinks. She wrote, I do not use them myself, but I have no thought of shunning those who think and act differently. She really was fairly modern in that respect. 
we should also remember that Lucy was the first wife of a U.S. president to be widely referred to as the first lady by the press. After a writer used the term in a column in a New York magazine, The Independent, in 1877. Thank you, Mary. With wall-to-wall coverage of every single thing any politician does these days, it's hard to imagine that Lucy's appearance in the press was actually unprecedented for the time. Some of us said it's because of the number of female journalists who devoted a large portion of their coverage to her. At any rate, she was unfazed, at least on the outside. Lucy wrote, Sometimes I feel a little worried, this press and annoyance going on. I keep myself outwardly very calm, but inwardly there is a burning venom and wrath all under a smiling or pleasant exterior. After Lucy's death in 1889 at 57 years old, her Kappa membership badge was donated to the Smithsonian Institution's Museum of American History where it is frequently displayed in exhibits showcasing the dresses and jewelry of the United States First Ladies. Okay, and I'll jump in with Lou Henry Hoover. Lou Henry was a sophomore and not yet a Kappa when Evelyn White, a former grand president who initiated at Beta Beta chapter at St. Lawrence University, went to Stanford for graduate study. The two women became close friends. Evelyn White became Stanford's first Dean of Women, and Lou Henry was initiated in that Kappa chapter in 1896, when the Stanford chapter was just four years old. Stanford is where Lou Henry met Herbert Hoover, and when he graduated from Stanford in June 1895, she continued her education while he pursued his engineering career in Australia. In 1898, the year Lou graduated from Stanford as the school's only female geology major at the time with a BA in geology, Hoover cabled a marriage proposal, which she promptly accepted by return wire. They were married in 1899. And didn't they move to China for their first year of marriage? Yes, and I also found a note that said they were both there during the Boxer Rebellion, which had to be a scary time. And don't forget that Lou was in London with her husband the day World War I was declared. Because of the throngs of Americans fleeing from Europe to safety in England, the American committee was organized and Lou Hoover became chairman of the women's division. There's Mary with our great war trivia. Thanks, Dr. Oz. You're welcome. So they stayed active after World War I, and when she became First Lady of the United States in 1929, the expectations were clear, be unseen, unheard, and uninvolved. But surprise, Lou instead modernized the role. She was the first First Lady to speak on the radio, and her radio broadcasts from 1929 to 1933 advocated for volunteerism and discussed her support of the Girl Scouts, an organization that she had served as president from 1922 to 1925, and again from 1935 to 1937. And unlike Lucy Hayes, Lou Hoover was a strong advocate of universal suffrage, which was ratified nine years before her husband took office. Lou urged women to exercise their right to vote throughout her lifetime. She said in one of her public broadcasts, bad men are elected by good women who stay at home from the polls on election day. 
Uh, can we please get that on a t-shirt? Uh, I'd buy one. Me too. All right. Speaking of t-shirts, I'm guessing if this next capo were on a t-shirt, Dr. Oz would have a whole closet full. You're right. Don't think I haven't considered it. Okay. My turn. <laughs> yes, you are up. All right. Dr. Crawford, one of my absolute favorites, and you'll see why. Mary Merritt Crawford Schuster, a Kappa from Psy Chapter at Cornell, described reaching the coast of France in 1914 as, quote, the most wonderful day and night of her life. The only woman contract surgeon assigned to the American Ambulance Hospital during World War I, Dr. Crawford made history, first as an ambulance surgeon and later as a pioneer in industrial medicine. When she graduated from Cornell University in 1904 and subsequently entered its medical program, there were only eight other women in her class. Ah, Cornell, a haven for early women pioneers. We also have one of the first women engineers who was a Kappa at Cornell and Elizabeth Cady Stanton's granddaughter, Nora Stanton Barney. That's right, but they didn't overlap while at Cornell. They did know one another, however, and remained friends after college. Anyway, Dr. Crawford worked hard, but as she later admitted, I wasn't an outstanding scholar. I didn't make any honors in scholarship, but I got through. She received her MD in 1907 and aspired to be a surgeon and join an ambulance service. Hospitals made it difficult for women physicians to secure positions, but Dr. Crawford refused to compromise. Most internships stipulated that applicants must be men. Noting that Brooklyn's Williamsburg Hospital left off that requirement in its ad, Dr. Crawford applied. She received the highest grade of 35 applicants on her entrance exam. She took a post as Brooklyn's first female ambulance surgeon with one catch. She had to furnish her own uniforms, since the only available alternates were made for men. She went on her first ambulance call in May 1908 by horse-drawn ambulance. And remind us, what was an ambulance surgeon? Like an EMT or paramedic, but with the same training as a doctor. During her stint with the ambulance service, she treated burns, broken bones, and other injuries, sometimes risking her health and safety for her patients. She was bitten several times and nearly choked to death. Still, Dr. Crawford worked her way up the ladder at Williamsburg Hospital, rising to the rank of house surgeon, supervising three male physicians. She was eager to participate in relief efforts when World War I began in 1914. Though she was determined to go to France, the Allied armies refused to accept women physicians in their ranks. When New York socialite Anna Gould, the Duchess of Talleyrand, pledged $1,000 to send six surgeons to France, Mary applied for the funding. The selection committee chose her as one of the six and the only woman. And get this, administrators initially turned Mary away when she arrived at the American Ambulance Hospital in Paris. After proving herself useful as an anesthetist, the staff surgeons gave her charge of four hospital wards each containing between 20 and 40 wounded men. Dr. Crawford was amazing. Did she stay in France for long? No. After a year overseas, she returned to New York, where she volunteered with the American Women's Hospitals. Once the United States entered the war in 1917, she established and directed the medical department at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. She devoted the next 30 years to the field of industrial medicine, supervising the health of bank employees and overseeing sanitary conditions in its cafeteria and dining room. 
By the time she retired in 1949, the medical department she directed was caring for a workforce of 4,600. So by industrial medicine, she would have worked on the forerunners of those videos we had to watch for our CPR class last month. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) I think I might like them better if she were the narrator. I just can't get over all that these women accomplished. And we only profiled three of them. I know. So here's our chance to plug that fall 2020 issue of The Key. In honor of Kappa's 150 years, there are 150 profiles of women who made an impact. You can find it at kappa.org or with all of our issues at the magazine at wiki.kappa.org. You know, I've read it cover to cover already, but I'm going to start it again for Women's History Month. I'm the same. I read it cover to cover, and I still use it for reference all the time. Maybe someday we'll have covered all the profiles in the magazine for our podcast, and then we can get to work on all of the amazing Kappas who have made an impact, but that we don't even know about yet. Good plan. Well, thank you both for your awesome profiles. I really hope that we inspire our listeners to learn more about the remarkable women who came before us. You know, I'm always down to talk about Dr. Crawford. And of course, I'm always up for a chat, you know, historically speaking. (laughs) You both are the best. All right, listeners, if you have a question that you'd like us to answer in a future episode, you can email us at archives at kkg.org. Until next time, we hope you have a remarkable Women's History Month. Bye. 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 You've been listening to Historically Speaking, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma, with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. Our house museum, the Stewart House, is in Monmouth, Illinois. You can find us online at kappa.org, or you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Many thanks to our special guest and director of the Stewart House Museum, Dr. Mary Osborne, from the Alpha Deuteron chapter at Monmouth College. Initial research was done by former fraternity president and former fraternity historian Kay Smith Larson from the Beta Pi chapter at the University of Washington. And production is done by me, Kylie Smith, from the Omicron Deuteron chapter at Simpson College and the archivist and museum director for Kappa Kappa Gamma. Thank you.